Uh, open up to Matthew chapter 19, really quick. Matthew chapter 19, I'm going to give you something, hand out something, but don't look at it. Don't look at it until I tell you. I can see you already. That's okay. But don't, don't take a really strong look at it. Because uh, I'm going to have you turn it over and see if you get it in a second. But how, uh, how, how many of you like subtle humor? Really subtle humor. I love subtle humor. Natalie's shaking her head. She doesn't like subtle humor. Uh, I really love subtle humor. And I like... Yeah. <laughs> um, one of my favorite cartoonists is uh, Gary Larson. Gary Larson is the creator of The Far Side. Do you know if you're familiar with The Far Side? Where it's like anthropomorphized characters that give really funny social commentary and socially awkward situations and stuff like that. I just love all of uh, Gary Larson's stuff. But one of his best is this one, and so turn it over and let me know if you get it. Yeah, Mark's smiling. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. The Midville School for the Gifted, and the kid's walking up, and he's pushing open this pull door. And I just think this is just the classic, classic cartoon. I just love this one. It's one of my favorites. Um, and he's trying to push open this pull door, but I think what's really interesting about this uh, particular cartoon is just how theologically rich this particular cartoon is. Now most, I mean, we don't think of cartoons as being uh, good advisors on theology, but I think there's a lot we can learn from this really simple cartoon and just its really simple message of this kid walking up to this school and trying to push open the pool door. And obviously he's trusting, as it says there under the school name, he's trusting in his own giftedness, so to speak. And I think a lot of the times we do the same thing. Well, in Matthew 19, there is a guy who did just that. Matthew 19 is a really odd chapter if you just look at it from the top down. It's just a strange chapter because if you just look at it, there, Christ kind of jumps from subject to subject, from topic to topic. He starts talking out about divorce, and then he moves to talking to children, and then he moves to talking to the rich young ruler, and then he moves into talking about camels and needles and going through the eye of a needle and stuff like that. And so it really kind of jumps around and doesn't really have a particular theme if you just kind of look at it. But what in the world do these have to do with one another? And they all really do talk about the same thing. All of those things, divorce and children and camels and needles and this rich young ruler, they all are really talking about the same thing. And I think it's important to understand that when you're reading your Bible, um, that the verse markings you see and the chapter divisions you see, they aren't inspired. I think that's what helps or sometimes hinders a lot of the time our, our Bible reading is, is that we just read just a particular verse and we take that verse as our quote-unquote verse for the day, when really it means probably something a lot different if you were to put it in its true context. It's like taking one little phrase out of you know, the Declaration of Independence or whatever and just harboring in on that one thing. It doesn't make much sense unless you have what comes after it and comes before it. And the same thing with your Bible, that these, these verses are there for a reason and they're not there to be taken out of context. And I think one thing that my dad, has, dad says all the time is that the three most important keys to Bible interpretation are context, context, and context. Everything, context is everything when it comes to interpreting your Bibles. Just like real estate, location, location, location are the most important things. Context is king. And where we might 
divide and see individual passages, a lot of the times Jesus is making a whole statement. What he's trying to say is this whole thing, not just this mm, little, little phrase. And so if you just take a, a bird's eye view of this passage, Christ's earthly ministry, um, you'll find that the Gospels often move from scene to scene of, of, of Christ kind of dispelling the sort of common myths and, and common thoughts about religion. Because there was a lot of religious people, but Christ's ministry really was a sort of reorientation and a, a ref, re, reformation, so to speak, of people's thoughts and attitudes towards God's law and God's kingdom. One of the most common fallacies of God's kingdom, of course, was that Jesus wasn't going to come in and ride on a horse and just overthrow Rome. That was the common idea regarding the kingdom of God as it was talked about, that Jesus was going to be this, this sort of champion, this warrior, and just lead a coup d'etat on the Roman covenant. But he was there to sort of reorient people's thinkings regarding God's law and God's kingdom. And so it is with Matthew 19 that Christ really zeroes in on the, the religious elite's insistence on their own righteousness. Now, the religious elite, of course, we could call the, the scribes and Pharisees. And these guys had really just sort of fabricated their own religious, their own religi religiosity. And, but in just three scenes here in Matthew 19, Jesus really disproves their righteousness, their fabricated righteousness, we could say, in the most sobering way. And we're, all, we're just going to take a look at one of them. But now, Matthew chapter 19 and look at verse 16. Says, and he, and behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he, that is Jesus, said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love the, thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go, and sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So you see, what happens is this young man, he comes up, this young, haughty, just sort of, this haughty young man comes up to Christ with the question I think that we are all actually thinking, which is, good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, we may not be asking that same exact question, but I think the question of eternity is on everyone's minds. Whether you're religious or whether you're non-religious, you have a thought about eternity. And even the atheist who says that there's no God, he would say that when we all die, we just go off into oblivion. And that's a very morbid thought about eternity, but he's having a thought about eternity. And that drives what he does. Like a person who is in the Islamic religion, he would say that I can do this sort of action and I can get straight into Allah and have my 72 versions. So that's going to drive what he does. Eternity drives men's actions. And so basically he's asking, God, what good thing do I have to do to secure my place in heaven? And this young man 
though. He thought that he was a winner. He was a successful man in all the ways that you would want a young man to be successful. I picture this kid as sort of like your model Christian. Like he had all the verses memorized. He had his Awana vest just full of badges. And he had all the catechisms memorized and he could spout them off like that. He was your model Christian, you know, and he was also devoting his time into soup kitchens and stuff like that. He was just your just, you know, we might call him a goody two-shoes, but he was your model Christian. And his query of Christ isn't so much of what extra thing must I do. I think that this young man's motive is a little bit different. I think when this young man came up to Christ, he was actually sort of probing for affirmation. He was trying to say, God, look at all these things that I've done, so just tell me that I'm good enough. He was probing for Christ's affirmation to say, hey, I see that you're awesome and you're good, so yeah, you can come with me into the kingdom. He was looking for Christ's affirmation. I think we can kind of hear his, sort of his pomp and his, and his trust in his own merit, sort of saying, what must I do? Because I'm pretty sure I'm keeping the law to the letter of the law. But I love Jesus' response. He doesn't retort this young man with a, a stern correction and a stern sort of lecture about how he has the law wrong. What does he do? He just gives him another comment on the law. What does he say in verse 17? Look at 17 again. And he, that is Jesus, said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. See, this pious and this legalistic young, youngster just hears this, and I'm sure that he was really excited. This response is exactly what he wanted to hear. He, he wanted to hear those exact words. Because when Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom, just keep the commandments. He's like, yeah, I'm doing that exactly I have done all these things from my youth, he says. Look at verse 20 again. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Yeah, I've done that. I've done that. I'm perfect. See, according to this young ruler, this young guy, he's never lied that bad. You know, he's never really just lied outright and egregiously and he's never murdered anyone and he's never stolen anything that that's that big or that significant and he's never actually had promiscuity with anyone physically. He's not that bad. He gives of his time. He gives of his money. He's a moral man and he's trying to prove to Christ his morality and how much better he is, how religious he is, but like many of us, he's missed the context and he's missed the subtext. <laughs> this young ruler had either forgotten or he had neglected to remember what the actual truth and the actual point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is his most famous sermon. It stretches from Matthew 5, 1 through the end of Matthew uh, 7. So for three chapters, Jesus is really, in that sermon, you could really actually say that he, Jesus is giving his sort of systematic theology of the Ten Commandments. Because he's really going through the Ten Commandments and saying, here's what they mean, and here's what you thought they meant, but here's actually what they mean. 
Here's what you thought that they were, but this is actually how they function in our lives. And he had heard that, that, that famous ending point at the end of Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this young man, who might have been in the crowd that day, he was like, Yeah, exactly, I'm going to be perfect. And he thought that God's law was a keepable thing, that he could actually be perfect. But the point is, the point in Matthew 5, the point in Matthew 19, is that you can't. It isn't that keeping the commandments and being something is pulling off, but Christ's point is that we can't. That's the whole point. He's saying that you heard it was said, but it's actually this. See, God's law is so much greater and so much deeper and so much more unflinchingly rigid than we have ever imagined. And its, it's demand for absolute righteousness just never relents. It never gives up. Because if it did, then it wouldn't be righteousness anymore. There's always more to do. As soon as you think that you've done enough, you are even further away from what it means to do enough. The law doesn't demand some of us. It demands all of us. Jesus even says this. Look at verse 21. If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt treasure, have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And it says that the young man went away sad. See, this is another instance, I believe, of what Jesus was saying in Matthew 5, where he, you know, like he's, like I've said, that you have heard it was said, but I say unto you, remember where he was, he was saying, you have heard it is said it is wrong to murder, but I say to you, if you even have a thought of hatred towards your brother, you've committed murder already. The same he goes, you've heard it was said that it's wrong to commit adultery, but I say to you that it, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. See, Jesus was enhancing the law. The problem is, when we read it just as don't commit adultery, we think, man, I can do that. I can check that off. Check. I didn't, I didn't commit adultery this week. Yes. Good. I'm religious. But Jesus is trying to say, that's not the point. That's not the point. And too often, I think, we're guilty of this very same thing. Of treating our, God, our relationship with God in the same way that this rich young ruler was. In the same way that this kid does on his steps to the school. Pushing on a pull door. He's going up to this door and he's pushing on it. Just like this rich young ruler was. And saying, look at God. Look at my righteousness. Now let me in. He's pushing on a door and saying, what must I do to be saved? And he determines to sort of win salvation by some sort of his own merit and his own sort of goodness. It's easy to do because we see the Ten Commandments and think those are my checkboxes. Or if you can turn to Philippians chapter 2 and you can read another verse where we often have the same reaction. Philippians 2.12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And a lot of the times we stop right there. Mm, work out my, my salvation. Let me, i got to work. i got to work out my salvation. Now see, what do I got to do? And we stop at that work out your salvation part. And we forget the next verse where Paul backs that up and says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
You see, if Jesus is the door, which he is, John chapter 10, we are often guilty of treating him like this kid does. We go up and we say, to, we try and prove to God all the things that we're doing and try and push down this door and say, God, won't you accept me? Aren't you proud of me? I've kept all the commandments since my youth. I've checked all the boxes. And with all our might, we try and open this door by any means possible. And I think that God's on the other side and he's just saying, just stop, stop. What are you doing? The door is already open. Just pull it. He's just saying, pull the door open. I, in fact, even say it's not even closed. We've tried to, in our attempts to open the door of salvation by our own works, we've actually closed it. Because with Jesus coming down for us, He opened the door wide open. You see, sin once, sin broke our once perfect fellowship with God. And, and now you could say there's an infinite canyon between us and God, a canyon that we can't span by anything that we do, no amount of religiosity or faithfulness or anything like that will try will span this canyon between us and God. The only bridge between the two is Christ. There's no sort of let me daredevil jump this and evil can evil this. There's no trying to jump over it. There's no pushing this door open. The only bridge is Christ and his cross where he says in John 10, I am the door of the sheep. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. You see, there's no need to try and push this door open, ramming it down with your perceived and your pretend righteousness and religious resumes because the door to heaven is forever opened by the cross of Christ. Your redemption, my redemption, my salvation is not earned by anything we do. Not any of my performances or my works in righteousness. It's not won by me giving of myself to this soup kitchen or to that soup kitchen. It's not giving, it's not me won by wearing a suit and tie every Sunday or having my hair trimmed or by any sort of religious and right thing and moral thing we might think. It's won solely by Jesus Christ. Your righteousness is solely existent because Jesus has put his on you. That's the only way you appear righteousness. And Paul spends five chapters talking about this to the Galatians. It's not about working and, and trying to push this door open. It's about accepting the righteousness and the, and the salvation God has gifted you. And I love this quote from one of my favorite writers. His name is Horatius Bonar. And I think he sums this up Almost perfectly. He says this. The office of faith is not to work, but to cease working. Not to do anything, but to own all that is done. Not to bring near the righteousness, but to rejoice in it as already near. He's saying that you don't have to try and work to bring it down. Righteousness has come down for you. You don't have to try and, and make something of yourself in order to get it. You already have it. Just accept and believe it. And believe it every day. Even those days when you don't feel righteous and you don't feel good and you don't feel like God can love you. Those are the days when you need to be reminded that Jesus is your righteousness. Just like Spurgeon always says that I need to preach the gospel to myself every day because I forget it every day. 
You see, the way has been opened now because of Jesus. The door says pull. Or actually, you could say it this way. The door says believe. Because the only work is just that, believe. J- John six twenty nine. Jesus says, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him who He hath sent. This is the only requirement for the gospel. The only requirement for the gospel is childlike faith. And I love that illustration that Pastor gave a couple months ago about faith, when he says that it is really just stretching yourself out on God. See, a lot of times I think we think of faith as faithfulness. Me being faithful and strong and resolute and me trying mustering up some sort of resolve in myself to remain faithful. That's not what it means to have faith. Because if you think that way, that puts it back on you. So if you're not resolved in that moment, then you're failing. And if you don't have enough strength to have enough faith in that moment, you failed again. Faith is literally stretching yourself out on God. Stretching yourself out on Jesus' performance. Faith has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. I would say it this way, that faith, the biblical life of faith in Christ is actually the death of one's own faithfulness. Is me saying, I can't even be faithful enough, so I have to let God be my faithfulness. It's the realization that there's no pushing this door down, that there's no way we can span this ravine, and that we're just miserable and desperate and devoid of anything that's good. You know, Pastor even said this a couple of weeks ago too, that everything good about us is Jesus Christ. He's our goodness. It's not our abilities, it's not our talents, it's not our our faith, it's not our religiosity, it's not our charity, it's not our morality, it's Jesus. And this is the engine for bringing down all haughtiness, John Calvin says. This is the engine and the sword for putting an end to all pride when we are taught that we are utterly nothing and can do nothing except through the grace of God alone. That's... What it comes back to. That we have to realize we can't make one ounce of progress in this life except and by the grace of God. And so through this chapter, through this rich young ruler, I think that's what Jesus is showing us. That that's what God is trying to tell us. That that God doesn't call for us to see these ordinances, these laws, these commands as our religious checkboxes. That we can check off and say, bam, I've done that. What can I do next? Or just like this rich young ruler, I've done that. What more do I need to do? What do I still lack to get to heaven? No, he calls to see, he calls for us to see that we're actually, we're just dead. We're already dead and we're actually lifeless losers who haven't won anything at all except more death. As we keep trying to protect our lives with our religious systems and our spiritual scorecards and our success stories, Jesus simply invites us to bask in his death. And nothing could be harder because we want to win. But Jesus actually says, you've got to lose first. The righteousness of this law is not something we can pull off. It's not something that we can do. And so long as we think that, as we dupe ourselves into thinking that we can pull it off and that we are, we're losers already. In fact, we're the biggest losers of all time. 
And that's what it comes back to. The battle of this Christian life is one of a battle for belief. Believing that it is already done in the fact that Jesus has won everything by losing everything. And we have to do the same. And once we realize that fact and we stop trying to push open this pull door and realize that it's already open, then everything becomes clear. That Jesus has done it all. It is finished. Let's pray.